Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. But right now, we're still in the COVID times, and we still can't bring Hearsay back to the live version just yet. But we're still craving storytelling, so we are bringing you another Homesay edition. This episode, The Best Laid Plans, captures that feeling so many of us have right now, thinking things were going to go one way, but then... So these stories were self-recorded in performers' homes at some point in the last few months. I'm not sure what time even means anymore, so I won't attempt to be specific. But stick around after the stories to catch a conversation with our special guest, Micah Hart, the host of Who Knows One, a Facebook Live game show he developed when his original plans for 2020 were upended. In fact, there's a spinoff of Who Knows One that airs weekly on Facebook Live, The Daisy Chain, featuring members of the Daisy community trying to find a chosen one. In our first story, Jill Howe has the best laid plans to swim with a baby beluga whale. I'm trying to keep up with my boyfriend at State and 31st. Please slow down, I beg, feeling a shooting pain from the bottom of my left foot to my lower back. If you do not know what sciatica is, you are so lucky. The sciatic nerve runs from your lower back all the way down to your heel. It is searing entire body gripping pain. I'm sweating with discomfort even as the rain starts to come down. We parked about a mile away from the shed aquarium to avoid paying for parking. I'd pay $100 for a cab right now. It really hurts. Please slow down. It's raining, Jill. Hurry up or we'll be soaked. Be soaked? I was soaked all the way through my shoes and socks. I am miserable, which is not the way I thought I would feel on the day I'm meeting an actual whale. That's right. I was on my way to have a beluga whale experience that my boyfriend had gifted me for my birthday. I was thrilled when I opened the brochure. Hugging wild animals was one of my favorite things. And though I've actually dreamed of hugging a baby humpback whale in the wild, I would settle for a tame beluga hanging in a private pool. My boyfriend isn't going to have the experience, which automatically feels like a bummer. They let him come back into the room where a loudmouth shed employee teaches us the etiquette of befriending a whale. No petting unless instructed. I was confident the whale would choose me as her love and I would ride her out in front of everyone at the shed. Then came the waiters. Every other suburban girl was there with a suburban guy, and when they brought out the lady-sized waiters, I finally snapped out of my pain, only to realize that I would have to put these waiters on for a six-foot size four as a five-foot size 14. I think I need a bigger pair, I whispered to Loudmouth. What's that, young lady? No, trust me, these will fit. Just try. They fit all the ladies. Everyone looked at me especially my boyfriend, who wasn't being embarrassingly suited up. Loudmouth had to relent after actively trying to squeeze me into the lady-sized ones. God knows what the category was of the ones that fit me. These fit all of the whale people. The ones in my size also corresponded to someone far taller. I thought waiters would be a break as they always look so loose and comfy on hot girls in the photos they sent me. Mine were so, so tight and way too long. They marched us in front of all of the aquarium plebes. Look at what they are doing beyond your sight. Ooh. 
I humiliatingly squeaked along the side of the tank in my new rubber sheath dress, tight, tight, tight on my legs. Now my sciatica is getting so painful under the constriction it's gone to my head, like when you're in so much pain you can't even remember what day it is. When I ease out into the salt water, the waders tighten with the change in pressure. That's normal, everyone! I gasp when I enter the pool like I'm being shrink-wrapped. My pain is so bad, I try to keep all of my weight off of the left side of my body by hopping on my right foot. Then the beluga swims in. Oh my god, get over it, Jill. It's a whale. You have wanted to hug a whale ever since you adopted one from a bubblicious rapper in fifth grade. You want to save a whale from a life without your love. Everyone say hello to Kimalu. I'm allowed to touch her. She feels like a raw hot dog. The whale went to the trainer and did a little spin and got a fish on her fleshy pink serrated tongue. Then Kimalu went down the line of us, couples laughing together as they pet her. A whale whose name means someone special in the Inuit language. God, I'm even a third wheel of this whale. Slap the water once and Kimalu will make a squeal or a bark or whatever beluga whales do. Slap the water twice if... Wait, what? What, what was twice? I'd be consumed with my pain again. Everyone did once, and I feel like, fuck it, don't we all want to see what two slaps is all about? Two slaps. Kimalu gave a terrifyingly piercing sound from deep in her throat, right in my face, and then spit a shockingly powerful stream of salt water out of her weird mouth, right into my goddamn eyes. Not only do I have salt water in my eyes now, but my mascara is starting to slide down my face, burning my eyes even more. Why the fuck would that even be an option? Now I was in pain and humiliated three times over. One, the sciatica. Two, the waiters. Three, the salt water in my eyes. I lose my balance a little as I'm on one leg and my ill-fitting waiters start to let water in. It's like I'm stuck in a used condom. I'm ready for my whale play date to be over when the trainer says, Oh, what's that Kimalu is bringing over? I hope it's morphine. But Jennifer, Brianna, or Chloe looks perfectly surprised, and I see why there were no two-slap whale spit in her face. Brad or Chad looks on expectantly. Kimalu pushes over a black waterproof box. Brad or Chad takes it, pries it open awkwardly, and proposes to Jennifer or Brianna. And then the half dozen of us have to feign excitement for an engagement that she just can't wait to post on Instagram. Then we have to pose with the whale. Look over here. Snap. Smile more. Snap. Can you smile more? I cannot. Neither can the girls who weren't proposed to by their chads. I haul myself out of the water, perhaps lucky my mascara is running, as now I'm actually crying. I make it back to the training room, peel off my waders, only to have old loudmouth from before say, How'd you manage to get wet, girl? The question is more, who would really notice if I drowned you in the private pool and had Kimalu bring me a drink while I do it? I put my wet shoes back on, pants wet now too. I walk out of the training room to my boyfriend with a huge smile, the most relaxed I can muster. How was it? It was so perfect, babe.
My shoes squished as we walked around. Are those still wet, he asked. No, they're fine. Everything is fine. Two slaps. In the next story, Anne Bonnie has the best laid plans to do international travel with only minimal stopovers. In the summer of 2019, I led a humanitarian expedition to Malawi in Southern Africa. 16 enthusiastic Americans were ready to spend two weeks building a high school in a rural area that didn't have a free public high school. We met at the Kenyan Airways boarding area at London Heathrow Airport. Some of us knew each other, some of us didn't. I actually only know three people who were there. So our chatty lunch in the international terminal was my opportunity to kind of size up the group. And I was really pleased. Even though everyone had been traveling for at least 10 hours from our homes throughout the United States, everyone was in high spirits and seemed like experienced and happy travelers, which would make my job as their leader a lot easier. As I finished a salad laughing at another one of Justin's dad jokes, I looked at my watch. We were scheduled to depart for our eight and a half hour flight to Nairobi in about two hours. Then after a short layover there, we would get on our three hour flight to Malawi. And then we just had a four hour bus ride from the airport to Mangochi where we would be building the school. We had a long way to go, but I was excited because I could tell this was going to be a really fun and hearty group. (laughs) We paid our bill and headed to the departure gate where we found out that our flight was delayed. Then we, when we finally got on our flight, it put our arrival in Nairobi at 9 a.m., which was two hours after our flight to Malawi was leaving. We were going to miss our connection. Now, I'm used to flying in the United States, where if you miss your flight, there's probably another one within a few hours. So I settled into my seat, popped an Ambien, enjoyed my plain food dinner and a glass of wine and snuggled down to sleep through the flight. When we, were, when we arrived in Kenya, I left the group in the waiting area and proceeded to the Kenyan Airways desk. The representative couldn't have been nicer. She flashed me a warm, welcoming smile. I kind of leaned on the desk, tired from the six-hour wait at Heathrow and the nine-hour flight here, but mustered a smile back at her and explained that we'd missed our flight. She knew we were coming and held up 16 boarding passes and said, yes, we've already booked you on the next flight to Malawi. I exhaled, relieved that we were all set. I asked when it was as I reached for the boarding passes. It's at midnight. My hand froze in midair, dreading another airport wait, this time 15 hours. And then she finished her sentence. Tomorrow, she said cheerfully. I stared at her, unmoving, unbreathing, I had been traveling for 29 hours in the same pants. I was hungry, tired, and now I was facing 36 hours in Nairobi, a city that I hadn't been to since 1983, with 15 Americans looking to me for leadership and direction. She smiled nervously as the seconds ticked by and I didn't move. (laughs) She moved the pile of boarding passes into my hand that was still frozen in midair and said sweetly, thank you. As if to say, move away, crazy lady. So I slowly backed away from the desk and looked down at the boarding passes. Sure enough, midnight the next day. But to my relief, I also found bus, hotel, and meal vouchers courtesy of the airline. At least I had somewhere relatively comfortable to store these people until our flight. 
I was shell-shocked. I walked back to the waiting room. The expeditioner stood up as I approached. I took a deep breath. I put on a brave face and said, Okay, team, our flight isn't until tomorrow night, and we've got vouchers for our time here. Let's head to the hotel and regroup. One of the expeditioners asked the question I was dreading. What are we going to do? I had to stall. So I said, once we get checked in, I'll give you a full rundown of the plan. When we were on the bus headed for the hotel, my boyfriend turned to me and said, you have no idea what you're doing, do you? I slumped down in my seat and looked up at him. No, we'll probably just sleep and relax. He looked at me with one of those looks and reminded me that this group was just coming together and that if I stuck them in a hotel room for 36 hours to wait it out and then expected them to follow me as a leader for the next two weeks, I was not thinking straight. (laughs) I hated to admit it, but he was absolutely right. We were all keyed up for this trip, and if we had to sit in limbo and do nothing for 36 hours, this trip, the team camaraderie, my leadership would be in jeopardy. I had to do something. And then I remembered that one of our other Warm Hearts board members, Kim, who was back in the United States, had led expeditions to Kenya many times. I cringed as I dialed her number because it was 2 a.m. where she lived. I apologized and told her what was going on. She cheerfully said she'd work on it and would get back to me and hung up. So Dan turned to me and said, what are we doing? I told him, I still don't know. Please stop asking. (laughs) Fortunately, the rest of the group had fallen asleep on the bus, so he was the only one asking. We sat in smoggy Nairobi traffic, inching along. My fingernails got shorter and shorter, but at least I had something to eat. Finally, my phone rang, and it was Kim. I've set it all up. Faruzi will be meet you at the hotel in three hours with a bus that'll fit, it, fit everyone. He's got a plan for today and tomorrow, so you should be all set. I thanked her profusely, breathed a sigh of relief, and then immediately fell asleep on the bus. We got all checked into the hotel and on schedule, as Kim had promised, Faruzi showed up with the bus. We visited the Sheldrick Elephant Sanctuary where they rescue orphaned baby elephants and fatten them up and prep them to join a wild herd once they're strong enough. After a really fun lunch, bonding and laughing and shopping for Maasai souvenirs, we went to a giraffe sanctuary where we came face to face with two gorgeous, elegant giraffes who ate pellets right out of our mouths. Yes, I have lip-kissed a giraffe, and it was spectacular. The next day was absolutely the icing on the cake. We got to visit the Kwawa Toto School, which is an orphanage and school supported by the Warm Hearts Foundation in one of the largest slums in Nairobi. What made the visit so special was that one of our expeditioners, Maggie, a 22-year-old pre-med student from Ohio, had done a fundraiser when she was 11 and raised money for the school to buy some land right next to the school to cultivate crops to feed the students and teach them about growing food. In the 11 years, Maggie's farm had provided a consistent source of nourishment for the Kwawatoto learners. And for some of them, it was maybe the only consistent source of nourishment that they had. As we looked at the farm, tears filled Maggie's eyes, and I turned to the headmaster. I pointed to the faded sign above the farm that said Maggie's farm, and then I pointed to Maggie. That's Maggie. He laughed, obviously not believing me. I said, no, no, that really is the Maggie. 
And he looked at her and then he looked at the farm and said, of Maggie's farm, he asked. I was like, yes. And then with that realization that there was a celebrity in their midst, all the teachers and students surrounded Maggie with pride and gave her a full tour of everything they were growing and the whole Kwawatoto school. It was really special experience for everyone, especially Maggie. As we settled into the boarding area at Nairobi Airport that night, reviewing the exciting events of the last 36 hours, playing cards, smiling, taking pictures, and continuing our team bonding, I thanked my partner for prodding me to take action when I was more inclined to just hide and sleep. It set our expedition up for success. And even today, I'm closer with that group than any other expeditioners that have gone on any other trips. It is absolutely amazing the bonds that form and the confidence that's built when you take action and stand in line to kiss a giraffe. Next up, Leslie Ty has the best laid plans to become more mature while in high school. I was almost 19 years old, having spent a year in Los Angeles going to college, feeling very adultish. I mean, I was now living in an apartment, cooking my own meals, with a work-study job. I wasn't old enough to rent a car yet, but I had managed to plan a trip back to visit my old boarding high school on my own. It was a rite of passage of sorts, coming back to show your former teachers and your younger friends that you were now officially an alum. In reality, I guess I felt like maybe I had something to prove about, you know, now being an adult. Because the thing was, all through high school, I always felt like I wasn't as grown up as everyone else seemed to be. I mean... On the one hand, I had always felt and been considered by my family to be the mature child, driven. I knew how to make goals and work towards them. I was the one who at 14 years old was applying to go to boarding school thousands of miles from home. But in so many other ways, I felt so much more like a child than many of my friends. Maybe it's partly due to my first roommate, who at 15 years old was secretly dating a 22-year-old back home. She would drink cough syrup to try and get drunk and tell me all about having sex with her boyfriend. I was pretty much the opposite of her. The only sex I knew about was in movies. And for my whole three years of boarding school, I had one, quote, boyfriend, unquote, for a week, maybe, my sophomore year. Needless to say, junior year, I switched roommates and moved in with my best friend, who, like me, didn't break the rules. Not that I really thought breaking the rules made you more adult, but I, I sort of did. I mean, the one rule I broke my senior year was my roommate and I snuck a little four-inch TV into our room so we could watch VHS copies of The X-Files and Northern Exposure. It was technically against the rules. This was early 90s and there was no internet on campus yet. But it, it was also kind of ridiculous because our hall counselor wouldn't have cared. Still, it made us feel rebellious. By that year, my roommate and I were the oldest students living in our dorm because we decided to stay in what was typically the freshman-sophomore dorm all three years for some kind of comfort. It felt like it was one of the ways the two of us could feel like we weren't frauds. We weren't babies at boarding school. Because in the older dorm, where the rest of the juniors and seniors lived, that's where the kids stood on the toilet in the bathroom to smoke cigarettes and try to blow the smoke up the ceiling fan. 
mean, I had friends who did that, but I didn't do that. I didn't try to sneak out of my room at night. I didn't try to sneak beer or weed or pills. Even in the honor storm, which I couldn't get into, by the way, with rooms that had their own exterior doors, I knew kids who snuck out at night or snuck people in. But I wouldn't have known where or how to begin something that nefarious. Like, I had the biggest crushes on some guys at school, just pined for them. But I never saw in a million years any chance they'd have interest in me. Partly a lack of confidence in my looks and my weight, but I think also a terrifying fear of getting intimate, what was expected, and just being an adult. I told myself that was because guys my age couldn't understand me. I told myself, you know, I would do these things later when it felt right. Now, a lot of that hadn't really changed my freshman year of college. I still didn't really have a boyfriend, but I did make out with a guy I just met on the movie bus. We went in to watch Days and Confused with a group and ended up grossly making out in the theater the whole time. To this day, I can't really watch that movie without having a feeling of remorse. He'd come back to my room with me that night, but when it became clear that I wasn't going to sleep with him, he quickly departed and never called. Sidebar, it was a very awkward time when several months later I became friends with a girl who was freshly pregnant from her boyfriend, who just happened to be that guy. (laughs) That was one path of adulthood I was glad I had avoided. But still, at college, I had friends who were in their 20s. I'd been to real clubs to see bands play. I'd lived, man! So coming back now to my high school, I really felt like I had something to prove, to show up as the confident, grown-up, living-in-Los-Angeles Leslie. Not the quiet, timid, deeply into her art, but feeling like a fraud Leslie. I was lucky enough to have an invitation to stay with my friend's family, who had rented a cabin to be there for graduation. We'd been friends since middle school, actually, as we came from the same town, and so her parents were happy to let me stay there. This was one of those friends who'd pretty much done it all at boarding school. A year younger than me, but far more experienced in all the ways that made me feel like a baby. So it wasn't actually surprising when I found out something that I had not known before. That apparently there was a tradition to have a big, crazy, drunken teenage party for the graduating class on graduation night somewhere near campus. And it just so happened that this big party was going to happen at this cabin. No judgment, but it was one of those cases where her parents thought, you know, if they're going to do it anyway, at least we'll be here to make sure everyone is safe. Now, let me tell you what I was doing the night of my high school graduation. I was with my roommate, my best friend, and our families. The adults were in one room, drinking, chatting, and we were sitting around a board game eating cookie dough ice cream and breadsticks. That was our big graduation party. We apparently hadn't even been invited to this infamous senior graduation party. But that's fine. Because now here I was, grown up, confident Leslie, finally getting to have that teenage party experience. Besides my friend's parents, I was the oldest one at the party. I was like the older sibling in the 80s movies that everyone looked up to, right? I could tell stories about college and the big city and life after high school. (laughs) The truth was, most of the kids weren't really interested in anything I had to say. 
they were playing out their own movie version of the teenage party. I didn't even know most of them. My friend was busy reliving all the good and bad of her senior year with everyone as they got trashed. It really was like every cliche. Kids competing to see who could get wasted fastest. Banning on who would be the first one to puke. Pegging each other on to strip down and run through the woods naked. Some neighbor calling the cops for the noise and then breaking things up. I spent the night mostly circling, picking up empties and trash and keeping one eye on a younger friend who hadn't graduated yet because I was just a little bit worried about her. And to top off my night, I discovered the bed that I was supposed to be sleeping in was occupied by several passed out kids that I didn't know, so I spent the night sleeping on the floor with a towel as a blanket and longing to be off somewhere else eating cookie dough ice cream and playing a board game or watching The X-Files. I guess, in the end, I didn't prove anything to anyone. Except, maybe myself. Next, John Klapko has the best laid plans to start a life with his college girlfriend. So, my sophomore year of college... I had a lot of plans, and most of them centered around a girl. It was inevitable that we were going to meet. I mean, we were both in the marching band. She played the mellophone. I played the tuba. Um, We were both performing arts majors. She was a a singer, and I was a, a theater major. And then we were both cast in the musical Carousel. So right off the bat, we were already spending like 75% of our days together. Um. So it's possible that maybe the relationship was based a little more around convenience, but either way, I was, I was really excited to be dating anyone, let alone someone who I was attracted to and, you know, who shared the same interests as me. But (laughs) I was 19 and a tuba player and a pretty sheltered kid. So my moves had not evolved much past you know, forcing myself to make eye contact and introducing myself. Luckily for me, when chorus members in carousel aren't hornpiping or bellowing about whales, they're spooning with a member of the opposite sex. So the director basically ended up being my wingwoman. Put your arms around her waist, John. No, both arms. Her waist. Closer. Now kiss. The awkwardness of those rehearsals, um, I mean, as embarrassing as it all was, they helped ease us into the relationship. Uh, But we stayed pretty awkward for a while. Um, Like our our first date, we went to Steak and Shake, which is fine. You know, you're allowed to go to Steak and Shake for a date when you're 19 and seeing a girl who plays the marching band version of a French horn. But I didn't have a license, so like I had to get a lift from friends who like sat next to us during the date and listened in. And I don't know, the the worst part of the whole experience was that she and I weren't even embarrassed by the cliche of sharing a milkshake with two straws. So I was determined to make our first kiss not awkward. I probably spent about a week trying to find a good moment, which was pretty hard because anywhere we went, she drove and 
I don't know. I was afraid of getting in an accident, you know, getting too handsy. Uh, of course, it finally did occur to me that I could wait until the car was parked. Um, so one night, you know, she's driving me back to the dorm and she mentions how awkward first kisses are and how they stressed her out. And I was young and dumb and a tuba player, but I got the hint. So as soon as we were parked, I'm, I made my move. I waited until she was kind of distracted and looking out the driver's side window in a position where she wouldn't have time to scream, you know, before my lips got to her, which for some reason was a fear I had like a lot of the time seeing her. Anyway, I darted in and I gave her a quick kiss on the lips and then I said goodnight and got out of the car before she could really respond. Looking back, it, it wasn't smooth at all. But at the time, I was pretty pleased with myself. And we kept seeing each other, so I guess it couldn't have been that bad. But after a couple of weeks, my imagination got away from me. I mean, I started picturing us becoming, you know, this power couple of the of the theater department, getting cast in every show. You know, I could be Sweeney Todd to her Mrs. Lovett. Then we'd graduate and have careers in New York. We'd get married, have kids, grow old together pay off our crippling student debt. She introduced me to her parents. Not a super big deal, because they were at every home game and we were in the marching band. But still, you know, that's a good sign. That's progress. And then we went and saw her mom perform in Nonsense, another musical, uh, at a local community theater. And then I, I found out that her mom was nervous that I was in the audience, which to me meant that her mother had like a pretty good amount of respect and so again, I was thinking this relationship is, is headed upward. This is good. This is good. Until one night she, she asked if I have my dorm room to myself. My girlfriend, not her mom. So I, I you know, I, I asked my roommate to bug off that night and that's fine. But I'm really, I'm terrified. Because there's only one reason she wants to be alone with me in my dorm room. And I know I should be excited, and I am, mostly. But I'm also terrified of embarrassing myself because I, I've never had sex before. But I, I came up with a plan pretty quick. I decided I would just, I would play it cool. You know what? Let whatever happens, happen. So she came over. We hung out. It was nice. We, I don't know, just talked. Um, And I was playing it cool or what I thought was cool but on the inside I was just I was melting I played dumb like I had no idea that she wanted to have sex that night I joked around about it you know oh no uh I don't have any condoms like well, I guess I can go get some one sec if you really want to impress a girl generic brand condoms from a vending machine are a sure bet at winning her heart Up to this point, I've sold a pretty solid image of how awkward I was back then, so there's no reason to go into detail on what happens next. I didn't suddenly turn into a mega stud with my no-name condoms and my messy dorm room and my pants around my ankles, but a couple weeks later, I read her diary while she was showering one morning. I should have known better. I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't resist. I read the entry she made about her first kiss. 
it made me feel a little bit like a stud. But I had the good sense not to look at her entry for our first time having sex. And I kept planning. Soon, she would meet my family. Finally, I worked up the guts to invite her over to dinner at my dad's house. It was going to be her, me, my siblings, my stepmother, my grandfather. It was a two-hour drive uh, for her. But somehow she found time between a 16-credit semester and two part-time jobs. And like every other relationship milestone, I was really, really nervous. But this time, this time I was definitely more excited than I was scared. I mean, she was driving two hours to meet my family and eat meatloaf. She was obviously committed. We'd bonded over Tetris backstage during Carousel. She taught me five finger patterns on the piano. We shared breakfast in the morning before class. I had toiletries in her bathroom, clothes in her hamper. She'd beaten me at Sega. There were a thousand little signals that to me meant things were very, very serious between us. The first thing she wanted to do when she got there, right after meeting everyone, was to talk to me in my room. I was very into this idea. We went downstairs. I shut the door. I reached for her hand. And she didn't reach for mine. She pulled back, like a full step, and then told me she had to break up with me. She didn't go into detail, just insisted that it had to be this way. Well, I was 19, and a tuba player, and... I lost my virginity to her. I guess you can uh, imagine how I felt in that moment. I'm a pretty good actor, though, so I didn't let on to her that that uh, I felt like my heart had just been stomped on with a with a with a steel-toed boot. I told her it was cool and that I totally understood. I wasn't sure she believed me, though, so just to convince her, I told her there was a really funny YouTube video I wanted to show her before she left. I pretended that my attention had completely shifted to this video. I tried to convince her and myself that her dumping me had so little effect that I could just pivot to this stupid YouTube video. So she watches the video, and then she leaves. And I, I told her to drive safe, even though I really kind of didn't care whether or not she drove safe. Kind of. Then my parents, of course, wonder what the hell happened. And I'm too ashamed to tell them at first, so I make up a lie about her sister being pregnant and needing her help that evening. But my parents know better. And they keep pressing me, so finally I told them the truth. They wanted to say bad things about this girl who they didn't know and who drove two hours both ways to break up with me, and I was tempted to let them, but instead I convinced them that she was a really nice girl and that she didn't deserve it. Which was the truth. 
Well, she could have sent an email, done it over the phone. I mean, either either she was the most honorable person I had ever met or the most sadistic. And, well, I just, I don't think a sadistic person would have shared a milkshake with me. When I finally tried to talk to her about it months later, she insisted that I wasn't the problem, that it was her that she just wasn't ready to be the person to me that I thought she was. I guess I I guess I had planned too much. And in our last story, Nancy Baker has the best laid plans to honor her late father with a scholarship in his name. Prodigal son. My father waved his hand low down near his knees and said, I started out here. And then he would shift his hand to somewhere fluttering over his head and say, but you started out up here. And that's why I expect you to go farther than I have. He constantly reminded me whose shoulders I stood on and that my elevated start was fragile, precarious, and that all gains could be lost with just one bad decision, just as his were mostly gained by one good decision when he was 18. My dad grew up from around age 10 in a very small town on the shores of Lake St. Clair, Michigan. And when I was young, I loved listening to him talk about his wild waterside, unsupervised childhood and thought that it sounded very much like the Laura Ingalls Wilder books I had received for my birthday. When he was 13, he skated down a windy corridor of a frozen river while holding a large kite sail and he ended up miles from home. At 12, he actually broke a car through some rotten ice on a lake and almost drowned while towing a shanty for someone. He went to a two-room schoolhouse until high school, and he saved his little sister's life on a busy road by pushing her out of the way and then getting grazed by the car himself. My dad grew up in a large, drafty home that was supposed to be a fishing resort hotel, but the depression and then the subsequent bankruptcy of the developer halted its completion. It sat empty and looking out over the lake with just partially framed windows and half-built porches until my grandfather bought that behemoth with lots of square footage and very little insulation for a song and moved his large extended family in. The house was so full of gaps that my dad remembers waking up to a dusting of snow on his blanket some winter mornings. So freezing bedrooms became a mark of strength in my family and I too cannot sleep in a room with closed windows, no matter how cold it is outside. My grandfather supported eight people, including a wife, four children, a widowed mother, and a half-brother, and family legend states that he moved this brood out of a decent cottage and solid working-class neighborhood in Detroit around 1940, not to escape the urban lifestyle or install his children in better suburban schools, but because the lake offered many ways to reduce a grocery bill. And St. Clair's year-round bounty included smelt, perch, bluegill, to name just a few of his favorites. My dad inherited this food frugality, and growing up, we always had a garden full of tomatoes, peppers, cabbages, pole beans, which I was expected to tend, weed, pick, throughout my lazy teen summers. 
He would dine on the homegrown harvest and utter joy, claiming, I'll bet we knocked a few dollars off the bill this week. The lake not only provided nourishment, but it also supplemented a very stretched income. And the family set up a small fishing business on the side, which attracted mostly auto executives up for a day from the better communities like Gross Point and Bloomfield Hills. My dad's family rented out a few battered boats, sold bait, built ice fishing shanties, and even made shore lunches for the well-heeled clientele. And you know, it was a smaller world in the 1940s, so when my mom came home from college and announced that she was seeing a young veterinary student, her dad, a Chrysler engineer, was very pleased until he asked a few more questions and connected the dots from his many weekends spent fishing on Lake Sinclair. Wait a minute. What town is this guy from? What's his name again? Wait, does his family rent boats there? Oh, God, I know that family. You are dating a river rat. My maternal grandfather's harsh assessment was unkind indeed, but according to my own dad, did not entirely miss the mark. In his town, the people once prospered at the Chris Craft plant and commuted to solid union wage jobs in Detroit's Big Three. But even in its heyday, his hometown was a bit rough. Many had drifted there in the 1920s from distant places in the South or Appalachia. And my father's family had come from Missouri to Detroit, where they lived for a time next door to the James family, as in Jesse James. And another branch ended up in Detroit from Kentucky, whose blood relations were the Hatfields of the feud fame. Hardworking as my family was... There was also a little hee-haw to it, as my mom described. For all of my father's siblings and cousins, college came in a distant second or third to finding a good union job and a spouse out of high school. Young marriages and even younger pregnancies was often the rule in this family. I think my dad worried that these decisions and outcomes were part of his DNA, passed on to my brother and me like freckles and long fingers. Compared to his reckless and even dangerously independent childhood and adolescence, mine were rigidly strict and constantly supervised. He vetted and reviewed every grade, friend, and boyfriend I brought home as if I teetered perpetually on the edge of a life lived in redneck hell. My dad came from a family of homemakers and auto workers, but within him burned a flame of other ambitions. His people were smart, scrappy, resourceful survivors who raised no fools. They were his strong, familiar anchor all through the Depression and war years. But to my dad, that anchor also weighed him down, pinning him to that lake town, and I believe he felt that he would drown there, which meant he had to leave. Of his three siblings, he was the only one to go to college, to not have a baby by 19, and to not rely on public assistance. So years later, as I contemplated my father's life and the place that had shaped him and, and then released him, I decided to create a scholarship in his name at his former high school, because maybe a small grant could inspire another young person to take a different path. After the financial arrangements were made, I scheduled a trip to the school to take care of the last details. I invited my 20-something niece and son to attend the final meeting because I figured it would give them a small sense of their roots and the chance to become acquainted with a man who had changed the course of their lives without ever even meeting them. Our journey took us directly into the heart of Detroit, where my father was born at home in a small clabbered cottage on Vermont Street and lived there until 1942 when he was 10. In the 1940 census, 
It states that my grandfather worked 48 hours a week in the Ford plant for annual wages of $971. When we came to the address listed on that census, we found only a vacant lot. The homes on either side were boarded up, and we all grew quiet, running through silent questions about how quickly the past evaporates into the present, how a city moves from the Paris of the West in the 1920s to a place of economic despair. We thought about the losses and the gains of a single family. We arrived on the northernmost tip of Lake St. Clair, and that night I stood on the shore and watched the glittering lights of the Canadian side. My dad once said, it's good to have lights across the bay rather than the dark open water. One is just an abyss and it makes you small, and the other makes you feel like a friend is waiting for you on the other side. The next morning we headed out for our appointment at the high school. We met the young principal who walked us through the halls and seemed to know all of the students by name. The corridors were beige cinder blocks that defined cramped spaces, and we paused in one hallway where a few old trophy cases lined the walls and defined the school's hall of fame. There, we read my father's name and saw his image staring silently back at us from a plaque that identified him as co-captain of the 1950 football team. The principal dropped us off at the counselor's office just down the hallway, our final meeting, to discuss the scholarship. As we waited to meet the college counselor, I noticed that there were no posters, pendants, banners, or anything mentioning any colleges anywhere. There were flyers about trade schools and recruiting information from all branches of the armed services. A brief conversation with a very overworked counselor about the scholarship did little to make us feel optimistic that anyone would apply for it, let alone use it as a springboard to a different life. The counselor admitted that the post-secondary goals beyond a good trade school were rare. And as she spoke, I studied a t-shirt that hung on the wall behind her. It celebrated and listed the small graduating class from the year before. I visually scrolled down the list and noted that five of the 70 graduates had my last name. And there it was, stamped on an orange t-shirt, evidence of the tribe my father left behind, his family, the subsequent generations who had remained. The names on the shirt were my son's and niece's second cousins, kids they might just have passed in these foreign halls and remain the strangers that they were. Our meeting ended and we walked across the parking lot. We had traced my father's path, we saw his childhood neighborhood, visited his school, and even stood on the shores of a lake where he sold bait and fishing shanties to help pay for his escape route to college. Years ago, I met a woman who professed to be a psychic. She read auras and narrated past life stories and claimed to see spirits. You know, you have a woman about 60 years old who's standing next to you right now, she mentioned casually, the way someone might say, hey, you've got something on your chin. Haven't you ever felt lucky, she continued, you know, those times when things could have turned out very bad, but they didn't. I don't know who she is, but she's related to you somehow, and she's saying that when those moments of fortune happen, that's her. She's always with you, looking out for you. And I thought about that as we continued to cross the hot pavement of the high school and the trajectory of my father, who once lived here with confidence and fit in with his friends, and yet somehow, luckily, decided he had to leave. I contemplated the ripples he created, the course of my life, and the path that I then created for my children, who have also left their hometown to become foreigners amongst our family. All of us, 
in our small party of travelers were left to contemplate these decisions, both past and future. The direction that we drift toward, the narrowly dodged bullets, and the travels with ghosts. So as many of you know, we were getting close to the end of season seven when everything shut down. And what's hilarious is that I was so unbelievably organized for season eight. In February, I already had season eight themes figured out. I had the postcards printed. I was already starting to review artwork for the flyers for each show. I even had storytellers already committed. And like so many other people's best laid plans, well, here we are. But if not for the pandemic, there might have never been the Who Knows One game show. So silver linings, folks. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, Micah Hart is joining us today from Atlanta. He's the host of Who Knows One, as well as the host of the Campfires and Color War Storytelling Podcast. I am a huge fan of Who Knows One, and I'm just so excited you're here, Micah. So welcome to our Zoom call. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I love podcasts, and, uh, and so it's fun to, uh, to get to be on one. Yeah, and it's probably going to be really nice to just talk and not have to explain the rules over and over again. <laughs> yes, that is very nice. <laughs> so I have so many questions for you, namely because you had no plans to create this show until there was a pandemic. Uh, but before I get to the questions, we should probably explain to the people out there who don't watch Who Knows One what it is. So do you want to take the lead on explaining it or do you want to test to see who knows who knows one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let, let's see how you do, and then I'll, uh, I'll fill in some gaps. All right, sweet. <laughs> okay, so in this game, it's on Facebook Live, uh, Jewish people from around the globe compete to find a chosen one, so another Jewish person, and bring them onto the Zoom call. And the hitch is that this has to be done without Facebook stalking and without Googling, but 100% by using network connections. But then the other hitch is I can't, like if I was called into the show, I can't just, it's like, text somebody and say, hey, do you know this person? Like, I have to bring them onto the call and then I tell them who we're looking for. Um, so if the other person doesn't know the person, they have to bring on someone else who they think might know the person or at least get closer to them. And the tagline is, it's not who you know, it's who you know knows. What did I miss? Uh, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> I think I think you got most of that. Uh, right, so... Uh, that's the main thing is it's a game of six degrees or however many degrees of separation. Um, and, uh, the only, the only thing I'll correct is because everyone, I say everyone, a lot of people forget one, one word in the, uh, in the tag. It's, it's not who, you know, it's who, who, you know, knows, Oh, whoops. <laughs> which is no, it's a terrible, terrible It's an intentionally bad catchphrase. Uh, and then you have the people who are yelling at me because it's actually, it's whom, who you know knows, I think is technically grammatically correct. I'm like, I, I don't care. Yeah. I think it's funny this way. So uh, no, don't feel bad. Um, no, I think you gave it a pretty good, a pretty good rundown there. Sweet. Yeah, I will say I work professionally as an editor and my view of the whom, who you did, like we're all off the clock. <laughs> that, that's that been my approach to this thing from the beginning with, with, yeah. with everything in my life pandemic related. It's like, we have bigger fish to fry. Like people will ask me sometimes if it's okay to curse on the show. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm not pursuing profanity per se, <laughs> but if people curse, uh, you know, this is a pandemic. That's about a thousandth on my list of things to care about at this moment. So 
Yeah, 100%. So, okay, so now that everyone knows what the show is, let's talk about why it is. But first, like, what were you planning for 2020? <laughs> like, what? Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it wasn't this, I can tell you that. Um, I So my, you know, career-wise, my background is, uh, is digital and content marketing. Um, I was, uh, in 2020, uh, I was the head of social media for Buffalo Wild Wings, um, and I think probably just sort of assumed that I would just keep doing that. Um, and then the pandemic happened and obviously that impacted a lot of us in a lot of different ways. Uh, and I started doing this show in April. Um, I just, I don't know. It was, it literally felt like one of those lightning strike moments where like, I mean, I remember literally I was out for a run one morning and there was a couple things that I guess were rattling around in my brain that kind of coalesced to this idea of for like, ah, oh, this might be a fun thing to do. Started doing it, uh, you know, did a couple of pilots with some friends and it seemed like everyone was having a good time. So I decided to, to pursue it. And uh, just again, had no concept that this would be where it would lead to. But so to make a longer story slightly shorter, I got laid off from my job in May and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and was still doing the show and just sort of organically found myself spending less and less time looking for jobs and more and more time working on the show. And I would say fairly quickly, at least as I recall, although, you know, time and memory is very fuzzy over the course of the last, however long this thing has been going on, uh, I felt like fairly quickly I saw an opportunity to, to make this like what I do. Um, and so I did, and this is now what I do full time is host the show and, uh, and building out the universe of what who knows one is and what it can be. So this was definitely not necessarily in my plans, but I think in hindsight, it does make some sense. My, again, I, I have a long history of content, marketing and relationship building online. Uh, you mentioned the podcast. I do host uh, a summer camp memories podcast that this was the child of uh, and then very quickly outgrew to be its own thing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I wasn't expecting this at all, but I definitely approached it with the spirit of I'm having a great time doing this and I see a path to this being uh, a venture and I'm going to do it until it doesn't either until it's not successful or until I don't like doing it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, um, I mean, I'm curious, like, you know, you say like this, this seemed like a natural progression and I'm curious if being like a game show host felt like, like, was that ever on your radar? Cause I got to tell you, uh, years ago, a friend of mine eloped and then they had a reception and for the entertainment, she asked me to host a version of the newlywed game at, at the party. And I, game. <laughs> yeah, me too. But I'll tell you, I am not America's sweetheart. I do not have the temperament of a game show host. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was also, I think at that point I was like going on eight years single. So like, I didn't remember, like, what do you ask married people about what they do? <laughs> Cause this was not a, you know, whoop, like, where do you make whoopee crowd? You know, right. the parlance <laughs> of uh, Bobby Hughes, sure. but um, sure. I thought I was, I thought I was going to hate it, but I loved it. Like, I feel like I missed my calling as a game show host. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's, it's funny because I have had people say to me, 
like when I'm sort of catching up with a friend, haven't talked in a while and I'm explaining like this absurdity of like what it is that I'm doing right now. And they're like, yeah, I could see that. That makes sense. I don't think I would have said that about myself necessarily. I don't think I would have specifically said game show host, but I will say I do enjoy being in front of a crowd. I do enjoy, you know, my, my friend and I, so I grew up at summer camp. That's like my, my whole approach to life is so based on my experiences growing up in the camping world. Um, and my buddy always would say like, having the microphone in your hand is like the ultimate power position at <laughs> camp. Like you're in control and I, that resonates with me. So I think that aspect of it for sure Mm-hmm. Whether it was a game show or something else, I don't know. But, you know, again, it's why I started hosting the podcast. Um, because I, I do enjoy putting things out there and, and leading things. Uh, so I guess it was a natural fit, but not one that I would have said ahead of time, most likely. Right. <laughs> so uh, so the show was originally called Jewish Geography Zoom Racing. Um, and then it was changed to Who Knows One in the fall. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, Who Knows One is a song that we sing each year at Passover. It's a way to like enumerate significant Jewish teachings for the kids, basically. Uh, but the new name, it's so perfect. It's so perfect. And I have to know, like, was your immediate reaction? That's brilliant. And I'm so mad I didn't think of that myself. Because <laughs> wasn't that somebody else's suggestion? <laughs> it was. Um, and it was a wonderful suggestion. Yeah. So, you know, when I first started doing it, we call, like you said, we called it Jewish Geography Zoom Racing because that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the concept is in the name. Um, but as I started to, you know, approach this as a, as a business, I knew I couldn't use someone else's IP uh, in, you know, in my own branding, nor did I want to be tied to a specific platform either. Uh, and so I, we have a, um, actually, I guess I did this before we have a Patreon community, but I think this was pre pre that, uh, yeah. One of the, I mean, one of the most amazing things about the show for me is just seeing the community growing around it. I mean, there are people who have, you know, rekindled friendships who have created new friendships and, and it's, there's such a spirit of community giving and help, uh, that's, I mean, it's in the game itself and takes place outside of, of the, of the show also. And so I put it out on Facebook, like, Hey, we're going to change the name of the show who has some suggestions. And yeah, when I saw that one, it really stuck with me. I was like, Oh, that's really clever because it's still, I think describes what the show is. Right. Um, in a similar way that Jewish zoom racing did, uh, but I also like it because as we expand into other territories, you don't need the cultural knowledge for it to make sense to be the name of the show. But it certainly works very nicely within the Jewish community to have that cultural tie-in. And we are, uh, I don't know when this episode comes out, but we're doing a, a big tournament called Elijah's Cup uh, around, <laughs> it's going to be around Passover. It's a 32-team March Madness-style bracket tournament. Uh, and it felt like the thing to do because our show's called Who Knows One. It's very Passover adjacent. So, and March Madness, like it all just kind of fits all together. So, uh, I love the name. I couldn't be happier with it. Um, thanks, uh, uh, Liana uh, Silverman, I believe, uh, is who gets credit for for coming up with the with the title. Yeah. No, I have to say, I mean, like my connection to the show is watching it 
And I was mad that I didn't think of it. <laughs> I was like, that's so good. <laughs> so, um, okay, so there have been so many memorable moments on the show that I don't even know where to begin, but I did jot down a few. And I don't know if like, if it's the kind of thing where you had to see it to really truly appreciate it. But like recently, um, Naomi Less, you know, she was brought onto the Zoom call to find the chosen one. And it turned out she had dated him. <laughs> and um, and she was sitting there like struggling with how to phrase the message. because She's like, well, he's so funny and I need to be funny. And everyone's like, it's a race. <laughs> um, it was just so hilarious and relatable that moment. <laughs> well, it was funny too, because she was a contestant. So she knows, she knows that the chosen right. one is is waiting for the message. But I get it if it's somebody that you dated. I that's those are definitely some of my favorite moments when when there are reconnections from the past that maybe are unexpected. Uh, and you know, it's great either way. It's great when there's a potential reconnection and it's super awkward because uh, that's amusing. Um, but what's even better is when like when it's amicable and people have fond memories of each other. And it's happened a couple of times uh, yeah. that the chosen one has been brought on by uh, a, a previous uh, relationship. Yeah, um, there was one memorably awkward moment where <laughs> the guy who was called said that he couldn't connect to the chosen one because he didn't like her not realizing that there were like hundreds of people watching this live, including the very person he was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, uh, that was so loud. I just, I you know, with that one, it's like, why would you just, I mean, even if you didn't know, or even if you, yeah, regardless <laughs> of whether this was a live show or not, like, why would you just volunteer that information to a bunch of strangers? That was so bizarre. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but no, that is part of why we, when people join the show, we make we try as best we can to make people understand that this is a live show that can be seen by you know lots and lots of people. Yeah, um, no, not, but, uh, definitely not a good moment, but memorable. <laughs> um, for sure. But then on the flip side, there was the woman who was called on to find the chosen one, and she knew him because he had helped her daughter find a donor match, and it turned out that it was the daughter's birthday. Um, that 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 was just that that sticks with you <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean that's definitely one of the more poignant moments I think we've ever had on the show and you know I think that's one of the reasons that I just love doing the show I always, I always say it's a, it's a lot like an improv show you know we know where we're starting and we know where we're finishing but what happens in the middle to get there is is different every single time uh, and you know there are so many like I mean, your mileage may vary on how spiritual you are as a person and whatnot, but like, is it a coincidence? Is this the universe like telling us something like whatever? But that was definitely one of those moments where, you know, she had a very, very personal connection uh, to, to this organization. And then the, to get called in on, on, on her daughter's birthday uh, and, and have that experience. And, and again, I think that's one of the things that's so awesome for me, just watching it play out show to show is that, there are wild swings of emotions. I mean, there are moments of insanity. There are moments of poignancy. There are moments of hilarity. There's moments of pure chaos and pandemonium. And often those things are happening, you know, within a five minute span of each other. <laughs> yeah, I I will admit that there have been moments at home where I'm like, oh my God, Micah, mute everybody, mute everybody. <laughs> AJ, I yeah. gotta tell you, like, it is just like, like everyone's talking at once and there's like 20 people on the call. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably, 
I think uh, other hosts would probably be a bit of, a bit more aggressive with the mute all than I am. Um, I you know I like the chaos. I think the chaos is a feature, not a bug. Um, and and it's funny. One of my one of my best friends uh, uh, is is very much the opposite of me in a lot of ways. And he sort of always talks about like he can only watch the show for so long because he just can't take the 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 chaos. Um, but I find that to be one of the most fun parts. One of our, one of, probably my favorite episode that we've ever done was an episode we did last summer um, with a couple of musicians, Dan Nichols and Shira Klein. Watch that uh, one. <laughs> where it was so fun. And so the theme for anyone that didn't see it was it was two Jewish musicians or song leaders, if you're from the camping world, and they were looking for another song leader that was the chosen one. And they could only bring on other musicians and song leaders to get there. And very, very quickly, I realized that that episode was going to be uncontrollable. Like there was no way that I was going to harness it. And I just was like, I'm just going to let it happen. I'm, I'm not going to try to control it. I'm just going to let it, you know, breathe and see what happens. And I found it to be so fun and so amusing and so chaotic and so off the charts insane. Um, and, and that to me like really unlocked for me in a lot of ways, some of the potential of the show of seeing like, you don't have to try to control it. You can just steer into it and it'll surprise you the things that'll happen. But I get that sometimes that chaos is a bit much for people. <laughs> yeah, it's very rare. I mean, it's chaos often and it's very rare that I say that. They're just, I don't know, maybe it's just my mood on the night. <laughs> so, um, so like, how do you know who's a good chosen one? Like, I mean, does it, does it stress you out when it takes an hour and a half to find somebody? Cause sometimes it takes a half hour. Sometimes it takes five minutes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have an evolving uh, opinion on that. I think uh, in general, my philosophy is uh, the, it's the journey is more important than the destination. And I think that as long as we're having a good time on the show, that it's a good entertainment product, if you will. And the, and the audience is having a good time. So I'm probably more concerned when the contestants are just not engaged um, and they're just kind of, you know, they've sort of checked out emotionally uh, as to what's, you know, what's playing out on screen. I care a lot more about that than I care about how long it takes to find the chosen one. Um, you know, it's not my preference for it to take an hour and a half to find somebody. Uh, but at the same time, I also think, that ratchets up the the tension. I mean, there's definitely a build, 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 release uh, element to the show. And the more people that come in, the longer it takes to find somebody, the more exciting it is when we finally get to that person and bring them on. So, you know, for me, it's more just about the energy on the Zoom uh, than it is about the, the duration. Um, but I would say that's definitely more for my shows when I'm doing them for different organizations, that's where I feel a little bit more anxious about how long it takes. Yeah. <laughs> so what's interesting though, is that when it does tend to run long, like that's actually when you pivot and you like abandon all your plans and it's just like, all right, the rules are off. <laughs> just do what you need to do <laughs> to get this person. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, you know, I, again, liking it a, a bit to an improv show, I, I don't ever want to be, uh, beholden to any specific way of doing it uh i think over time like we've certainly created like this is the structure this is how things work um 
but I, I always want to be open to possibilities. Um, and you know, honestly, a, a great example of that to me is we did a we did a Hanukkah show in December where we had uh, eight eight guests, and it was almost like a it was sort of like a name that tune style single elimination show. And we got down to the final two contestants, and one of them made a suggestion of instead of doing it sort of name that tune style that we pivot and do just straight head to head. And that wasn't my plan. I wasn't intending to do that. Um, but I loved that suggestion. And so we immediately made the decision to roll with it. And I just, I don't know, that speaks to me as a person. Like I, I love the idea of like, don't be beholden to things because you never know what could come of a, of a mistake or an accident. Um, I, I learned this a lot in my, my previous life working in social media. I don't really, I don't believe in failure. I believe in learning. And I think that if you approach things that way, it's not to say it doesn't hurt when you screw up uh, or, or make a mistake. Of course it does. Um, but I always feel like, okay, what did I learn from that experience? And how can I, how can that change, you know, my outlook moving forward? I just have found that to be very helpful in my career and also just in how I approach living. <laughs> Um, and so, I, you know, I never want to be closed off to possibilities. Um, and, uh, and I think in this show, like a lot of the best moments have kind of happened when we've just let things uh, play out instead of being like, nope, I'll give you another, another great example. One of my favorite moments from the show is actually uh, from, from this year. We, we did a top 10 list of our favorite moments of, of 2020. Um, and uh, I think... I have an early front runner for for the top moment of 2021, um, but uh, uh, Hindi uh, Popko, who was actually the person you were discussing earlier, uh, who had the really poignant moment on the show back in December, uh, she was a contestant in January and brought her sister on, and they ended up bringing their mom on. And the family dynamics on the show is definitely one of my favorite things that happens, and just seeing families interact with each other, especially in a race environment. <laughs> And they brought on their mom and her mom uh, just could not have cared less about the show uh, in a really fun and endearing way. I love it when people are like that. And so they're trying to get her to help and she's not being helpful. And she's like, what is this? Why are you doing this? Uh, and their turn ended. This is on our Wednesday night show where there's a, there's a time limit. Um, and we let them go five minutes over their time limit, even though their turn was over just because it was funny just to watch them interact with each other. And we would have missed that whole thing if we had been like, nope, we hit 25 minutes. Sorry, your turn's over. Uh, it didn't matter. It's, you know, at the end of the day, this is meant to be a show for us to hang out and have a good time together. And the, the game is the, is the vehicle for that. But I don't want to be so uh, beholden to, you know, to structure. Yeah, I, I missed that one. I'm going to have to go back and find the video. Oh, it's that. really funny. <laughs> yeah, actually, when you say, talk about family dynamics, I mean, Herschel's mom is the first thing that pops into my mind, <laughs> which again, I, I don't even know how to capture that for people who are listening to this. Just go to the Who Knows One Facebook page and find the video because <laughs> that was pretty epic. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say anytime, uh, you know, there, there is a there's a stereotype that is not entirely fair, but it's also not entirely untrue that uh, the older you get, the less technologically inclined you might be. Um, and that can present a challenge uh, for contestants on the show, but it also usually provides some of the most uh, entertaining moments ever. 
Um, Herschel's mom being a wonderful example of that, <laughs> trying to understand how to uh, get somebody's contact, contact information and get them onto the show. I mean, we had a show where uh, someone had an old school Rolodex and got up from their computer and walked back to like the back of their room and thumbed through a Rolodex for probably five like actual minutes, like five full minutes. And it was so funny. I mean, just that, which sounds like the most mundane, boring thing you could describe to somebody was hysterical. Also because he thought he knew the person we were looking for, but it was someone with the same name, but not the person we were looking for. And we couldn't tell him because he was away from his computer, 15 feet in the background, uh, looking through an old school Rolodex. So a lot of the, a lot of the you know, technological issues that uh, come up on the show often lead to the most entertainment. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a lot of visual comedy <laughs> you have to be watching to, to truly appreciate. Uh, so actually, so let's talk about your podcast then where there is no, you know, it's, it's all audio. Um, I mean, camp is so integral to the Jewish youth experience in so many ways. Um, I mean, so much that it's a clue in, for, you know, when you're talking about finding the chosen one, it's often you include what camp they went to. Um, so, you know, people who listen to the Hearsay podcast are storytelling fans. Yours is a storytelling podcast. So I, like, tell us about it. What sorts of stories are on, on your podcast? Yeah. Um, so, you know, <laughs> a bit of my background, my, my dad was a camp director for, for 30 years, and I spent the first 22 <laughs> summers of my life going to summer camp uh, all summer. Um, so I went to uh, Jacobs Camp in Mississippi, and I also went to Goldman Union Camp Institute, aka Gucci, uh, in Indiana for for eight years as well. And you know, I just I f- I find have found as an adult uh, that all I want to do is talk about camp, and I any excuse I have to tell a camp story, I'm going to take advantage of it. And I just found that as an adult, I just those opportunities were few and far between. Uh, there's not a lot of opportunities in normal life to do that. Um, but when I'm with my camp friends, like that's all we do is just reminisce and, and, and tell stories. And so there's a, <clears throat> I don't know if it's a famous episode, it's a famous to me episode, but there's a, an episode of This American Life called Notes on Summer Camp that I heard some years ago. I mean, it's probably eight to 10 years old at this point. Um, and I remember listening to it and thinking like, I'm not really interested in the stories that they're telling but what it's making me do is think about my stories on the same topic so they're talking to some kids at a summer camp about the ghost stories that they tell at their camp and like every camp has stories like that that they pass down to campers to spook them or whatever and it just made me think of that like what okay okay what's the ghost story from jacob's camp etc and that was kind of the inkling for i want to do a podcast that's just storytelling about summer camp because it's fun to hear people's stories and relate them to your own. But as a listener, it just puts you in that headspace of reminiscing on your own experiences. And for me, I mean, that is just one of the happiest places I can be, mm-hmm. uh, both physically and emotionally and mentally looking back on it now. So the podcast is really just for people who went to camp. My, uh, my, my, you know, understanding of them as people is that if you went to camp, you just can't shut up about it. And there's a lot of people who went to camp and a lot of people who love to tell their stories from their times at camp. It is very much 
meant to be just a feel good, put you in your happy place. But, but also, you know, to talk about all of the experiences that we had for better or worse, like a lot of things that happened at camp were mortifying. Uh, but with the benefit of hindsight, it just becomes a great story to tell. And maybe you were furious at the time or, or horribly embarrassed or whatever. Uh, but as you look on, look back on it now, like there's a, you know, there's an, uh, Amber, is that the term? I don't know, whatever. Uh, you know, it becomes more of a positive than, than a negative. And so we love to get people's stories that run the gamut and we have a questionnaire that we ask every guest. It's several questions that are like, what's your most embarrassing camp memory? What was your most romantic camp memory? What was the best performance you were a part of? Um, and, uh, you know, top or bottom bunk, like all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's all just meant to give people an opportunity to tell some of their favorite stories from, mm-hmm. from growing up. So I, I love doing it. I, I sadly haven't had a chance to do them as much since uh, the, sh- the, the game show takes up so much time, but we, we will be back soon uh, with new episodes, I promise. Cool. Yeah, actually, so I went to Camp Shy in Wisconsin uh, for, oh, okay. for three years, I think, three or four years. And as you were listing all the questions from the questionnaire, I was like, I know how I'd answer that one. I know how I'd answer that one. <laughs> actually, like my favorite camp story is like so inconsequential to the camp experience, but it's so memorable. There was one night that uh, the 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 dinner was chop suey um and so and everything uh, all the liquid stuff was in styrofoam cups and I went to take a big swig of my lemonade and it turned out to be the cup of uh, soy sauce <laughs> you know I didn't have the 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 wherewithal to just like spit it all over everything so I swallowed it and we went on an overnight uh like a camp out that night in the woods and I thought I was gonna barf the whole night just like, it was so horrible <laughs> and I don't know again it's like at the time I was, it was horrible. Like I don't ever, sure. don't ever drink a couple <laughs> soy sauce. It's disgusting. PSA. <laughs> PSA. That's what I'm here for. But, uh, but yeah, it's just such a, like, such a dominant memory for some reason. Um, yeah. So it makes for a great story now. And that's, yes, it, does. <laughs> it was worth, it was worth it for that. <laughs> oh, totally. Cause I mean, what was that like? 35 years ago <laughs> yeah. more. So. did you uh did you watch the show we did for camp shy back i did in, uh, December? Okay. yeah i did we're doing another one uh i think in april so sweet yeah no it's uh i i hope that people i mean because you don't have to be jewish to enjoy it <laughs> i mean actually no honestly, I, I don't think you do um <laughs> i have friends who are not jewish who who watch from time to time and i mean i think it is amusing uh it's obviously it's more interesting to a Jewish audience, but just the whole notion of like, we can find anybody anywhere uh, is I think a pretty, you know, pretty entertaining concept uh, all in. So, so uh, last thing before we go, I was actually going to say, let's all be optimistic and say, we're all going to be vaccinated by the end of the year and we get to leave our houses again. Um, Will you keep the show going? And it sounds like you will. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's certainly uh, some bit of an existential question as to the the shelf life of, of this show. I mean, obviously it works very well now when we're all sitting around trying to pass the time uh, and it works very well for that. Um, I, I believe it will continue. Um, you know, we'll see. Uh, and my approach for this whole thing has been, I feel like I stumbled onto a gold mine. Like I, I didn't plan this. Um, but I, it feels like playing with house money. So if it lasts 
another three months, if it lasts another 10 years, like I am trying to be present and enjoy it for what it is. Um, and that said, I do believe it will continue. It may, it may pivot again. It may change. I mean, everything does. Um, but I think that the, you know, what makes the show so great to me is the spirit of connection and reconnection. And uh, for people like myself, who, you know, have had a career and have family and not a lot of time, like I have so many people from my past who I feel very strongly about, but I just don't have time to talk to anymore. And this show is a way to keep those relationships alive, whether it's someone getting called into the Zoom that I haven't seen in forever, or watching the show and someone else is watching it uh, who is an old friend of mine. And I think that's when I really, when I started to see that taking place, that's when I really thought, okay, this is, we're onto something here. I don't think that's going away. I think we are isolated from each other. I think that is exacerbated by the pandemic we're living through, but it predates the pandemic. We have, we have already been like that. And that yearning for reconnection to our past and to the people that we hold dearly, that's not going to change. So I think we'll still be doing it, but will it shift into a different format or different times? I mean, that remains to be seen. I, ex I, I believe it would be a really fun live show like to do in person. <laughs> um, so, you know, when we are able to start doing things in person, I'd like to try doing that. Um, and it may not be twice a week like we do it now anymore because right now it's really easy to do Saturday nights. Uh, but I also will probably want to get back out on a Saturday night at some point when, uh, when the coast is clear. So it'll probably have to adapt, but I, I plan to keep doing it. Like I said, as long as people will, will be interested in it. And as long as I'm having a good time with it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I am very excited to, to hear that. And so my sister will also be excited. She's the one who introduced me to your show. Uh, we actually, we sit there texting while we watch, <laughs> commenting awesome. on things. Um, or like, she'll say like, like if I don't have the chat open, you know, cause people are chatting as, as the show goes on and she'll say like SBB's husband just said this. And it's like, I've never met SBB. I've never <laughs> heard of her until the show. And now it's just like, like, like you start to feel like, you know, these people. So, yeah. Yeah. Totally. This has been such a great, thing for the pandemic and hopefully beyond. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I was really excited to talk to you to, to just like hear all these things. Um, so if you're interested in um, the Facebook live show, uh, it's Saturday nights at nine Eastern and Wednesday nights. Also at nine Eastern. Also at nine Eastern. And they, the shows are two different formats. Um, and then your podcast, I'm assuming, is available wherever podcasts are, are found. <laughs> yes, I, I do need to get it on Spotify. I'm not there yet, um, but that's just laziness on my part. Um, but yes, otherwise, you can find Campfires and Color Wars uh, at all the, all the places uh, that you can find it. And if you go back through the archive, we've had some really, uh, really cool guests in the past. Um, David Wayne, who is the director of Wet Hot American Summer, mm. uh, which I think is the, you know, the, the pinnacle of uh, summer camp entertainment. Uh, he was on and that was just like such a highlight getting to talk to him about that movie. Um, that's, I'll, I'm going to put this out there into the world. My goal with the podcast is to one day interview as many, to interview as many people who are involved in Wet Hot American Summer 
as I can. That's a, that's, that's a squad goal. (laughs) So another form of uh, geography zoom racing. That's right. Get Get me people from what hot American summer. Make it happen. Awesome. Well, thanks again so so much for joining us today. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hearsay is typically a live storytelling show staged in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by AJ Scott. Thank you to our venue and photography sponsors, the Workshop Brewing Company and Harp Star, who we miss so damn much. And a special thank you to Micah Hart for joining us today from Atlanta. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. We hope to bring you more live storytelling soon. Thanks for listening. Mm